Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. And in today's episode, we're taking a journey into deep London, where we'll roam the city's lost landscape and explore its hidden waterways. When we think of London, we usually think of a sprawling urban metropolis. Glass and steel, terraced houses, every imaginable form of transport and quite a lot of noise. We don't often think about the natural landscape that lies beneath it all. And yet, our guest today argues, it is London's geology that has been a crucial force in the shaping of the city over the last 2,000 years. In today's episode, we visit London in its infancy, when it was barely 20 years old and the Romans had just begun to establish it as a major urban centre. We'll explore the ancient rivers that were the city's arteries for hundreds of years and we'll walk along the marshy wetlands of the banks of the Thames. Our tour guide on this ancient journey into London is Tom Chivers. Tom is a writer, publisher and arts producer from South London. He's also an award-winning poet who has published two pamphlets and two full collections of his poetry. London Clay, Journeys in the Deep City, is his non-fiction debut and it's been described by critics as entertaining, enlightening and deeply moving. Before we get into this fascinating book with Tom, I just wanted to mention that our Christmas special episode will be appearing on your feeds very soon. Myself, Peter and Violet got together to talk about some of our favourite books from the year and remember some of our favourite episodes too, so do keep your eyes out for that. In the meantime, here's my conversation with Tom Chivers. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's such a pleasure to have you on, um, especially for a book that's so unusual and, and taught me so many new things about London, so thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be on, on the podcast. It's an amazing uh, I mean, you look at the people who've been on this and, and the fascinating stories they've told. So, yeah, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. I wanted to talk a bit at first about, um, yeah, about kind of the the premise of London Clay. When I was reading it, I had I was given a totally different perspective on London. I'm I was born in London, raised in London, and I don't really think about London as a natural landscape at all. And you spend a lot of time like in nature in the book, kind of walking through forests and and kind of like really being yeah very much in the natural landscape and I wanted to ask you why was it so important to you to dispel this idea that London is just a kind of completely urban man-made landscape why was it so important to make nature that primary focus it's a good question um I mean to some extent of course um I think we all need the natural world in ways that are profoundly um spiritual um as well as as well as practical um, but but fundamentally, the premise of the book is to try and and demonstrate how uh, the um, the the natural environment, the landscape, the geography, the geology of London, how these are all the 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 determining factors in how the city has developed. So everything to do with with London's history, but also how we use it today. So you know where tube stations are sited, the curvature of streets, um, you know particular industries and 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 functions in particular areas. Um, and, and then basically just the way that we 
that, that we walk across the city. All of this is determined by the natural world, but so much of it is now invisible, is buried underneath the streets. Uh, most obviously, of course, the lost rivers, but also geographical and geological features such as marshes, hills, uh, and so on. Um, so, so that it, it has quite a kind of focus on on trying to show not only what is beneath, but also you know its impacts on what we what we see above the above the surface. So, yes, I do walk through. Um, I walk through urban forests such as um, Dulwich and Sydenham Hill Wood. Um, and, and little kind of glitchy uh, wild areas within within the city but a lot of the walking is actually done through the kinds of streets that everyone who lives or works or has been to London will be familiar with um, and it's, it's about showing the invisible things that, that we can't see beneath the streets. Mm. And I wanted to know I guess I, I'm kind of determined having read it to now when I walk around the city see it in a slightly different way or be able to notice these things what advice would you give to anyone else who is walking around and it doesn't have to be London I suppose it could be any city what what should they start looking for to start seeing some of this natural landscape that's hidden underneath everything well I mean to give you a bit of a, an insight into the the process of the book which I think is pertinent to that question um, I always start with maps and um, the whole project London Clay began with this um, Collins Street Finder map um, that I just bought in in my local bookshop, and I began to um, I began to trace over the streets, uh, the geological layers of London, so the, the various deposits of silt and alluvium and sand and uh, gravel and, and so on, so that I could understand um, what was actually going on with that natural environment. Um, it, and, and to be really connected with the, with the city that is still here. Um, so not, not merely to do it as a kind of an abstract concept, but to understand, you know, where, where you see the juncture between two um, geological strata, you can understand why a particular street is in that shape or, or, or whatever it might be. So I, I think my advice to anybody interested in, in, in understanding the natural environment of a city is to begin with a map, uh, to try and understand that, that, that base uh, geology of, of the environment and, and then of course to get out and walk it and, and walking was such an important part of this book um, and it's a kind of walking that was to some extent structured so I'd, I would usually have an idea I'm going to go to a certain area I'm going to follow a particular feature like a river or, or the uh, circumference of an island um, but I'm going to be doing it uh, alive to um, or open to to going off piste and to exploring you know, following my nose, exploring uh, you know, alley, alleyways and just things that, that kind of um, that pique my interest. And in terms of understanding that, uh, that connection between the geology and, and, and what you see today, there are certain tips, particularly things like, you know, if you're following a lost river, you know, you've always got to try and aim for the lowest point, the, I think it's called the Talweg, um, the, the lowest point of, of the river valley. So although, you know, all of London's lost rivers um, are obviously buried mostly in the sewer system, you can still see where they went because the valley is still there to some extent. Um, so that's that's the the, the the biggest kind of piece of advice is, is always try and follow that that lowest point. But then you can also look out for street names, um, place names that crop up that might give you a little hint of, of, of something that used to be there before. Um, I'm thinking like something like uh, oh I don't know if you're in Shoreditch and you'll you'll pass a lot of places called called Hollywell. Uh, Hollywell is Holywell and it used to be one of the the springs of London. Um, and that pertains to the lost River Walbrook. So, you know, it's things like that, just keeping your eye out for, for place names and, and trying to understand 
the the topography of the streets you were walking. Mm, absolutely fascinating. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about that argument that you make in the book about geology being so that London's geology being so significant and how the city's developed. Because I was thinking that maybe some listeners of the podcast might listen to that and think. Well, you know, they're they're avid history fans, so they think that a city's development is dictated by its people and by the events that happen in it. And it, it kind of struck me that there's almost something quite deterministic about this idea that the last 2,000 years of London's history has been in so many ways determined by just the ground that it happened to be built on. But that's very much the argument that you make in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd like to think there are there are people and characters and 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 so on in the book but perhaps the biggest character is the environment itself and um as hopefully we'll discuss later you know that the the geology of london and, it, and the geology then determining the geography is the determining factor in london just being where it is in the first place um and uh you know i, I think there are there are so many things that can be explained about the relationship between different places in london about power about religion that are all connected ultimately to to where these geographical features are. Um, so yeah, for me, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's completely, it, it has to be part of a historical understanding um, is to understand that underlying geological layer. <clears throat> it, it brings to mind for me uh, when archeologists, when geologists, sorry, um, uh, when, they, when, they, uh, uh, the, when they conduct borehole sampling of an area, the, the topmost layer is always called made ground. Um, and made ground is is basically what archaeologists are interested in. So, so this very small bit on top is what geologists call made ground. Um, it's the it's the it's the human waste that has been deposited over however many hundreds or millions or hundreds or thousands of years, and um, and that is everything for archaeologists. Whereas for geologists, it's merely the top layer. And effectively, they're not that interested in the made ground. They're interested in the in the superficial deposits which is below the main ground, and then, of course, the bedrock and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think looking into looking into, into into the past on an archaeological perspective gives us a great sense of how small we are. But, my gosh, it's nothing compared to a geological perspective when you're looking at, you know, tens of millions of years. Mm, yeah. yeah it's, it's, I mean, I guess that's why it's called Journeys into the Deep City. Yeah, exactly. So just before we get into your chosen year that you want to travel through time to, I wanted to ask you, what was your favourite thing that you discovered while you were researching this book? There are so many interesting things to choose from, I'm, I'm sure, but what was something that you were really struck by when you were writing it? Well, I did encounter a lot of geological features, phenomena that were um, anomalous, and um, and those always were, were very compelling as ideas. Um, you know, we have a kind of basic idea of, of London as being a river valley where you have an alluvial floodplain full of silt and then you have this series of gravel terraces um, kind of stepping away from, from the river both north and south and and in those I found a number of, um, of anomalies um, which are sometimes known as drift or scour hollows and they're basically huge depressions in, in, in the gravel terraces and they are mysterious they are unexplained by geologists there are various theories as to why these might be there um, but for me what I was always interested in is trying to connect them back to um, to, to the human use of the city. So were these just kind of um, geological phenomena that, that had no relationship to anything or, or did they in fact determine the way that that particular part of the city was, was encountered by, by man? And uh, we'll hopefully talk about one of them a little bit later. Um, but those were, those were really fascinating. Uh, and then I discovered right at the end of my journey 
when I was um, walking down the River Lee, which of course is a is a, one of London's uh, one of the Thames's tributaries, but is not lost. It's still very much there, um, but it's surrounded by by geological fault lines. I discovered that in fact the entire London basin uh, is being uplifted, to use the geological term, or, or raised very 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 slowly um, by a geological process um, which which ultimately uh, formed the Mediterranean Sea and and the Alps. Um, so even though you know we're on the Little Island, we are very much connected with these kind of tectonic forces taking place over millions and millions of years. It's such an extraordinary thought, I think, and that really relates back to what we were saying at the start about um, having to remind ourselves that we're not separate from nature, you know, that we're very much a part of it. And in the long, in long time, we're still kind of just absolutely not victim is a horrible way to put it, but yeah, vulnerable to these these vast geological changes. So, Tom, London clay covers so many different time periods and characters. I know that it wasn't necessarily an obvious choice of which date to go for, but if you could travel through time to any year in history, what year would you like to choose? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not an easy challenge for me, but it is an exciting one um, because I'm not a specialist in, in any particular area of, of history um, or anything, indeed. But I have chosen um, the year 62 AD, and this places us in, of course, Roman London. And the, real, the, the reason I wanted to place us in Roman London was because the Romans were the first people who, who, who I mean, London is a Roman city. They founded it. And, and 62 AD, um, to some extent, is a slightly arbitrary year, I have to admit. Um, but I wanted it to be a year uh, when London, London was founded in around about um, 47, 48, 49 uh, AD. Um, a few years after the, the invasion of Britain um, under Claudius. And, um, and then, of course, it was burnt down by Boudicca during the Iceni uh, revolt. And that burning of London can still be traced in the archaeological record as this kind of layer of black soil. Um, 62 AD, this is after the Boudiccan revolt. So London is being rebuilt by the central Roman government um, as a planned city. So this is kind of the, the real origins of the London that we know today, or the city of London that we know today. Um, and I did pick 62 AD um, slightly arbitrarily, but also because 62 AD is the date given to the first um, recorded reference to London, or Londinium, um, which is in a tablet, uh, not an iPad, but um, a Roman tablet made of clay um, that would have had uh, writing on it using a, a stylus. And uh, it was discovered a few years ago um, on the banks of one of London's Lost Rivers. So where I'm taking you is 62 AD on the banks of the Lost River Walbrook. Uh, and this is a river that used to flow from somewhere probably around Islington through Shoreditch, picking up little streams on the way and then passing through the Roman Wall um, and then coming through the city of London and eventually outfalling uh, into the Thames around Cannon Street. And the Walbrook is an incredibly important lost river. It's the first lost river to, to disappear for a start. And really it's, it's, it's part of the reason why the Romans sighted London where it is uh, today. You have a freshwater stream uh, going in between two small gravel hills that create a very kind of firm base for a city. On the one hand you have Corn Hill and on the other you have Ludgate Hill, which of course is where St Paul's Cathedral is today. 
and um, and and that is that is the kind of the the landscape that the Romans are looking for. They're looking for firm ground on the north bank. You've got the River Thames, of course, providing uh, an incredibly important connection with the continent, um, and then you have uh, you have this very firm ground on the north bank. On the south bank, you have less firm ground. Um, it's very very marshy, and the, the landscape the Romans would have encountered at that time was was very, very different to what we see today. Um, the river that we see today is, is is much narrower. It's also deeper. It's faster and it's far more uh, it's far more kind of um, dangerous, in fact. Um, so you can't imagine, for example, fording the River Thames today. Um, but uh, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, that, that's exactly what, what would happen a little bit further upstream from the city. Um, so, you know, the Romans were encountering this this landscape that is, I think, a truer reflection of the geology. Um, it's before anything has been embanked. It's before you know the great terraforming of the Victorian period, and, and that's the kind of original landscape that, in a way, kind of obsesses me and is the foundation of all the work that I've done in, in London Clay. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing thought to the idea that we could walk through that landscape. I'm sure London would look just yeah unrecognisable and yet kind of strangely familiar, maybe. I wanted to ask you a bit about, you mentioned that London was in the process of being reconstructed after this um, very extreme burning. I, I didn't even, I didn't actually know about the, about Boudicca and the rebels burning down London. Um, what would that reconstruction have looked like? I just kind of want to, like, if you could paint a picture for us of what we're, uh, you've described the landscape, but what kind of buildings would we find in London at this time? Well, I think the, the early, um, the, the very, very first version of London, if you like, um, before the Boudicca revolt, um, most historians believe was was largely um, a kind of organically developed city of, of traders, you know, just, just merchants trading by using the river and so on. Um, and then, you know, later, you, with the, with um, after the Boudicca revolt, it's much more of a kind of formal plan Roman city. So you know, you have all those those features of all Roman cities: um, a, a forum, an amphitheatre. Uh, these were both constructed around about um, AD 70. So in the year that we're kind of conceptually in, um, the, the forum and the amphitheatre wouldn't quite be there. But almost certainly there would have been that basic road plan. Um, so, for example, uh, on the banks of the Walbrook, because that's where we're standing, um, somewhere around about the Bank of England today, um, there would have been a road running uh, kind of east to west um, along along that, that, that area of the Bank of England. And there would be a little bridge over the, the River Walbrook, and the bridge that was discovered a few years ago in the construction of a, of a, a building, I think in the 90s, in fact. Um, so you would have had a basic street plan. Uh, you would have had, of course, houses, workshops. Um, you would have had markets. It, it would have been, I think, a bustling place. And there's, there's every evidence that London recovered very quickly from, from that burning down. And, uh, and, and you also have to bear in mind, of course, that in the early years of, of Roman Britain, London wasn't the capital. Um, you know, uh, Colchester was the capital. Uh, St Albans was also a very important city. Verulamium, uh, and uh, so London was 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 not quite as important. Um, but then, after it had been rebuilt, it, it soon became uh, you know, clearly the most important city. There was also a fort established uh, about AD 100 at Cripplegate, um, around about where the Barbican Centre is. Today, so it, it clearly had a very important military function too, um, and a defensive wall. There was always some sort of defensive wall around London, but the, the kind of the chief one was built um, towards the end of the second century AD. 
And I just wanted to talk to you a bit about this this um, burning because I did when I was researching for this interview. I found it absolutely fascinating how we know that this incredible, disastrous, incredibly destructive fire had happened. How, how do we know about it? Uh, well, this this is um, this the the, the Budokan revolt is is kind of remembered in the archaeological record as as this layer of black soil, um, which, which I just kind of find fascinating, really, that almost the revolt has become uh, almost like another layer of the geology. Um, you know, when I was making my my little geological maps, um, very much kind of along the lines of primary school art project, uh, you know, using fine liner pens and highlighters, um, I would use all sorts of different colours to, to to label these geological layers, and, and black would be the the Budokan revolt is kind of um, ground zero, really, for, for London. Mm. And the, underneath the layer, there was lots of Roman it, like artefacts as well. That it was almost like that had been. It gave you a sense of what had happened before, and then the fire had happened, and then that, I guess that's what the that's the kind of beauty in a way of geology is that layer, layers and layers um, on top of each other. And I also just wanted to ask you about this tablet is with the first written record of the name London or Londinium is there somewhere that I can see that <laughs> out, of out of interest I'm not sure where it is it, it, it'll either be in the British Museum um, or the Museum of London or it might be in this remarkable building um, called the London Nithraeum. Um this is slightly later than, than 62 AD unfortunately it'd be nice we could squeeze this in but um, the London Nithraeum is uh, is is a uh, I think it's a third century um, a religious building, um, underground religious building or temple, um, which was dedicated to the the god Mithras, um, who is a, a god of, of Persian origin, um, often depicted wearing this remarkable little hat that makes him look a bit like a smurf. And um, and the, the, the Mithraeum was discovered in, in the 50s uh, on the banks of the River Walbrook, in fact, on a street called Walbrook, um, which is just uh, northwest of Cannon Street railway station. And um, and this this underground temple um, would have been where devotees to this 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 religion or this cult um, would have descended and performed various rituals to the god Mithras. And um, it's a very important area for archaeology in, in Roman London. And, and this tablet, and, uh, alongside hundreds of others, um, was was discovered fairly recently in the building of um, Bloomberg's new European headquarters. And to their great credit, they have actually rebuilt the Mithraeum, um, roughly on the site of its uh, original construction. And you can now descend, it's a kind of tourist attraction, you can descend into the Mithraeum and they have this amazing light and smoke show to try and evoke what it would have been like to descend into that into that sacred space, uh, you know, 15, 1600 years ago. Wow, sounds amazing. You've described beautifully for us where we are in our first scene on the banks of the Walbrook. Um, I just wanted to talk a bit about this idea of a lost river um what what does it mean for a river to be to be lost and yeah could you just tell us a bit about that? this is a key question in, in the book and it's a question that I, I don't i never really came to a, a kind of concrete answer for because um you know a river is kind of a gathering of, of water from the land um so is is the river the water perhaps but then a river also um, creates its own form um, as a depression in the landscape, and so is, is the river, in fact, the land. And then if a ri river is culverted um, and then taken somewhere else, uh, you know, where is the river gone? Is, is the river in its original place, or is the river in this kind of new diversion? So, you know, it's, it's a sort of philosophically complex question, um, what, what, is or, uh, what is or what is not a lost river? What we do know, what I can, I can certainly um, describe to you, 
is is the landscape that the Romans would have seen. Um, London, by and large, was not a place where there were any significant settlements before the Romans, um, at least in central London. There's plenty of evidence of of, of the Thames Valley being being used by um, by prehistoric people, by Bronze and Iron Age people, and so on and so forth. Um, particularly in areas um, like Bermondsey, where, where we've discovered this extraordinary uh, trackway, Bronze Age trackway, crossing a, a prehistoric lake. Um, uh, I explore that in the book. It's all now kind of light industrial estates, is where where London's kind of buses go to be maintained and so on. And uh, there's also um, some really interesting pier structures, wooden timbers found in Vauxhall that seem to date to various different prehistoric periods. So there were people in London doing things, depositing things into the river. Um, there, are, there is also evidence of, 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 uh, of agriculture, but there were no significant settlements. So when the Romans came, it was, it was to some extent, it was a kind of um, uh, tabula rasa for them. And what they would have seen um, beyond the Thames, this, this much wider uh, watercourse, they would have also seen lots and lots of tributaries um, flowing in from both the south and the north. And these later were given names such as Ephra and Quaggy and, uh, and Fleet and Westbourne and Tyburn and so on. And a lot of these appear in, in my book. And um, for many, many centuries, London was, was still a, a landscape of, of flowing streams. But of course, as, as uh, the population of the city expanded, these streams, you know, once life life bringing, um, turned into open sewers. And it was only until the 1860s when uh, the great engineer jo Joseph Bazalgette planned this huge sewer system. And he, he then culverted and then bricked over um, dozens and dozens of London's lost rivers. Um, so nowadays, most of them still flow to some extent um, in Victorian brickwork. And indeed, in the book, I go down into, into one of them, into the River Fleet at Blackfriars, and, uh, and encounter the waters of the River Fleet flowing quite quickly towards me um, in the darkness. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what's happened to them now. But there are also plenty of rivers that uh, were never bricked over or which were and have now been released, particularly in outer London. So you can see lots of um, parts of the River Wandle, for example, in Wandsworth or, or the, the Quaggy or Ravensbourne in southeast London. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say I've known the Quaggy. I've grown up really near to the Quaggy for a long time. And it's such an interesting, weird word as well. Is that an... What, when, where do some of these names date from? For these I actually names? don't know where the Quaggy comes from. Um, it is one of the weirdest ones. Some of them are quite obvious. Um, something like Fleet, and that comes from the Old English for, for river or flood. Um, related to the word flood, there are also ones that are pretty clear, like um, uh, like the Westbourne. You know, that's merely the, the bourne or stream uh, to the west. Um, and there, there are also ones which are unexplained and that have kind of multiple etymologies. Um, the Ephra, which is kind of my, if the Quaggy is your home stream, then the Ephra is very much mine. So I grew up in a place called Herne Hill and also lived in West Norwood, and both of these uh, places are connected by the River Ephra. Um, the Ephra has various derivations. It, it might be a corruption of the Heath Row um, from a, a, a field around around Brixton, um, or, or it might be from the uh, Celtic word "fluid," meaning meaning a torrent of water. Um, so, as ever with with early history, it's um, you know there, there's an awful lot of kind of uh, creative uh, creative thought around around etymology. Mm. You've told us a bit about um, what we would find 
um, by the Walbrook, for example, the Temple of Mithras. Could you tell us a bit more about if you were going to paint a picture of what we could see if we were stood on these banks? Who who are we coming across and what kind of industries would you find along the river? Well, the, the Walbrook was a very important river, not only because it provided fresh water, um, but because it also provided water for industrial use. So you would have seen um, trades like butchery, for example. Um, okay, perhaps not the most pleasant thing to see by a river, but you would have seen the carcasses of, of animals uh, flowing down the Walbrook into the Thames. Uh, and indeed, we still, on the foreshore of the Thames, we still find huge, huge numbers of, of bones. Uh, and some of these, no doubt, will, will, will date back as far as the Roman period. Um, you also would have seen things like um, uh, glue making from, from the horns of animals. Um, these are things that, that would have required quite a lot of water. Um, and, you know, you also would have seen, um, no doubt, people using it as an open sewer. Um, so, it, you know, it's important not to overly romanticise the Lost Rivers. There's a great, uh, this is not the Walbrook, but the fleet, there's a great painting by, um, I think it's not actually by Canaletta, but it's in the style of Canaletta, um, which is, uh, you know, it's an 18th century painting of, of the, the mouth of the River Fleet. And honestly, it makes it look utterly beautiful, you know, with this stone bridge across it and clearly inspired by, by Venice. Um, but, you know, already at this time, Daniel Defoe was writing about dead dogs, you know, flowing down, down the River Fleet. So yeah, it's important not to romanticise things. It would have been, you know, a working, a working river. But it's also, it's also astonishing to to know actually how large these rivers were. They they weren't just piddly little streams. Um, just because nowadays they flow through sewer pipes. I mean, they would have been quite substantial streams. You've mentioned that um, all of the things that would be deposited in the river, and um, I know we were speaking a bit earlier um, before we started recording about uh, mudlarking, and that's obviously why. That's you know that's why rivers are such fertile grounds for mudlarking is because of all of the things that people throw in them basically. Um, could you tell listeners a bit about what mudlarking is if they're not familiar? Yeah, of course. I mean, mudlarking um, appears a little bit in the book, but it, it's mostly something that that I've been doing personally for the last year and a half, two years. It's really a lockdown hobby for me because I, I live near the river in Rotherhithe, and um, yeah, mudlarking, you know, at a basic level, it's, it's getting dirty on the, on the foreshore of the Thames at low tide, looking for whatever items of historical interest you can find. And, um, you know, London's a very old city, so uh, you can very easily go down there and, and within a couple of hours come back with uh, Victorian stone bottles, um, you know, 17th century jewellery, um, Roman pottery uh you know it, it's it really is it's kind of an endless um mishmash of, of historical artifacts um and indeed in my hands right now i'm holding a number of things that i've found in the river that date to roman london perhaps a little bit later than, than the 62 ad that we've been talking about but um i've got here a, a, the rim of a, a roman mortarium which is a, a huge uh vessel for the grinding of herbs and and spices and so on and you can tell it's a mortarium because it has these um the inside of the pot it has these kind of grits um baked into the surface to help you grind uh, herbs and spices that was one of the very first things actually that i found in the thames and really got me excited about about what you can find in the river um because you know when we were discussing this a little earlier Artemis, but you know it's a very democratic way of encountering london's history you know anyone can go down to the thames foreshore as long as you have a a permit from the Port of London Authority, and um, and you can go and dig for things and, and scrape along, look, looking for old coins and so on, and it really gives you that that connection, that really kind of tangible connection with 
of London's history. Mm, yeah, no, I, I just was um, desperate to sort of ask you about that because I think it's exactly the kind of thing that it's very in with in keeping with what we do on travels through time that you know getting to grips with almost like the material history and the imaginative aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely, and, and also when you go down there, I mean, it, it's you know travels and time. I mean, gosh, you, when you go down to the Fortress of the Thames, you really do feel like you are going through a portal into another era. I mean, primarily you're going back into into the Victorian or very early 20th century because so much of the dock infrastructures, um, the piers and so on, date from that period. But um, you know, I, I also go. I go night larking sometimes. I have small kids, so I put them to bed and go out at you know at eight, eight or nine o'clock at night, and can easily be there until midnight. And it is so atmospheric, and you really feel like um, like you, you've you've been lost. You, you've kind of been you've become a ghost in London's history. Um, you know, trudging through the mud, uh, in the mist, picking up all sorts of bits of junk. It's um it's an extraordinary activity and something that that I find personally very sustaining. Mm, I love that, yeah. So, Tom, we've we've traversed the banks of the Walbrook um, in our first scene. Would you like to tell us where we're going to in our second scene in 62 AD London? Yes, we're going to go to um, somewhere that everyone will be very familiar with um, around the world. We're going to go to Westminster. This is the heart of power in modern London and in really the whole United Kingdom, you know, the mother of all parliaments. Um, but in 62 AD... Westminster looked very, very different. Um, in my book, London Clay, um, the chapter on Westminster is called the Westminster Delta. And really, I'm less interested in this chapter, um, particularly at the start, with um, the human activity on Westminster and more interested in the original landscape. Because what the Romans would have seen in Westminster is nothing like what we see today. It would have been largely, um, we think, uninhabited. And the area around Westminster Abbey um, and the Houses of Parliament, that area was in fact on an island, and the island was called Thorny, and Thorny Thorn E. Um, e is the Old English for island, and Thorn is thorn. So it would have been an island, um, probably full of thorn bushes. Um, so a very kind of remote place, um, and. That island would have been um, you know, a gravel island in a predominantly kind of wetland uh, environment in Westminster. The, I call it the Westminster Delta because, um, as well as being on the banks of the Thames, it's where a number of London's uh, so-called lost rivers outfall. So on the south bank of the Thames, you've got the River Ephra, which uh, almost certainly would have had a number of different streams towards its mouth. And then you have the River Tyburn, flowing from the uh, hills of Hampstead. And this would have, in fact, um, split into um, almost certainly three, if not more, branches, one of which would have gone through Pimlico, and the, uh, the other two would have gone around Thorny Island. And then finally, you would have had the River Westbourne um, in the west, delineating Pimlico from Chelsea. So you would have had, what's that, one, two, three, four, five, six or seven um, streams all going into the River Thames through this incredible kind of marshland uh, landscape. And that is the landscape that, that I traverse in, in London Clay. Um, so as I said, the Romans the Romans didn't really um, have much activity on Westminster. And we have a little bit of evidence of, of, of things happening a bit later uh, than 62 AD. So for example, um, uh, in 1869, near Westminster Abbey, a sarcophagus dating to the 4th century, so a bit later in, in the occupation of 
of Britain uh, was was discovered, and um, it was a, a limestone sarcophagus made by the sons of, of a Roman called Valerius Amandinus for their father. And what was particularly interesting there is that in fact it was reused um, some six or seven hundred years later by uh, by the Saxons, so for the body of a Saxon. Um, so so there's that. There's a Roman sarcophagus being discovered. Um, there are also some bits of hypercourse, which are Roman central heating discovered uh, on, on Thorny Island, um, and some evidence of, of, of uh, agriculture too. But basically there are no significant um, buildings that have been discovered, no significant settlement on Westminster. Um, so really what we're looking there is a kind of wild landscape of, uh, of marshes and, and rivers. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you a bit about um, how people would have got around the city at this point, because as you've outlined, there are, you know, there's, it's basically waterways everywhere. So were people, would, would ordinary people travel around on, on boats? Yeah, there would have been a lot of uh, a lot of river traffic, um, as, as there always has been in London. Um, it's really only since, I suppose, the, I don't know, maybe the, the railway age that, that rivers have become less used. So there certainly would have been a lot of river travel. Um, but, you know, there were also, of course, the, the Roman roads. And um, and as we're talking about Westminster, as we're, we're in Westminster in 62 AD, um, it's worth thinking about what was what was there in that vicinity. And, of course, the great Roman um, road, uh, of course, it's actually pre-Roman. It was an Iron Age trackway repurposed by the Romans, um, was Watling Street. And Watling Street is that great straight road um, from London to Canterbury. Um, the road, of course, that you know, many centuries later, Chaucer and his pilgrims um, would have would have gone down uh, to visit the shrine of, of Thomas Becket. Um, that road leads directly to London Bridge, to the crossing of the Thames at London Bridge, which is you know, the, the Roman the Roman bridge crossing um, established around about 52 AD. So that would have been there in 62 as well. However, and, and this is a, a kind of mysterious point really in my book, but before London was was actually established, you know, the Romans were were there, the legions were there, um, maybe maybe something like five or six years before London was established, and it's believed that the original crossing of the Thames wasn't in fact uh, at London, uh, at what we now call London Bridge, but it was um, somewhere much closer to Westminster. Um, so we believe the crossing may have been um, around about kind of Lambeth Bridge, um, that sort of area. And, um, and so although Westminster in 62 AD would have been not, not um, you know, a significant settlement for the Romans, it might be that there were some remnants of an old ford, uh, an old crossing there. Um, and it has also been speculated that there was a Roman temple um, on Thorny Island as well. So although I have said it wasn't particularly inhabited, very difficult to say, and it's quite possible there would have been, uh, there would have been this kind of uh, Roman temple a little bit out on a limb. Mm. I guess that's the whole point of us visiting it as our second scene because we could go and we could find out for certain. Um, I just wanted to ask you a bit about um, in the book you you refer to this area as the Westminster Delta, um, and to my shame I had to look up what delta is because I was not I'm not geographically literate at all. Could you just explain a bit about yeah what a delta is? I mean a delta is um, is uh, the best way of looking at it is the Nile Delta, it's the most famous delta in the world. Where you have a huge river that, um, when it gets right down to its lower reaches, as it reaches its mouth, um, splits into uh, a number of different streams. Um, so it has that kind of—it almost looks like the frayed end of a of, a, of an electrical wire um, with lots of streams coming out. 
Um, so yeah, that was that was why I used that that term, just because you have, particularly with the Tyburn, you know, the Tyburn does split into at least three streams. Um, so that's why I used that particular term. I mean, it's slightly kind of, it's slightly punny. It's uh, it's really it's it's an imaginative leap, you know, particularly when you're walking around modern Westminster. Um, and I did that a lot. It's a real imaginative leap to to think of it as this kind of wetland area. Um, but that was indeed uh, how it was, you know, right up until um, the early 20th century. You know, the, the building of the Thames Barrier was a huge part of um, of kind of uh, restricting our our vision of London as a as a wet city, as a, a city of water, um, because before that date, you know, quite regular flooding would have would have um, turned areas like Pimlico. Uh, into into a swimming pool, really. Um, so you know, yeah, there's, there's a lot of imaginative leaps that have to be taking place in a in London play. Yeah, and you describe how um, I think how we've uh, Londoners have kind of dried out the banks of the Thames and made those areas much more, um, I guess, hospitable. How how do you mean dried out? What is that just literally th- from building on top? And yeah, it's a combination of, of draining and and embanking, really. Um, Perhaps the most the most obvious place to look at, um, as well as somewhere like Pimlico, would be on the South Bank. So if you're walking along uh, along the river path um, around the South Bank Centre, Waterloo, Lambeth, um, you're walking on on a, a slightly raised um, raised pathway that dates right back um, almost certainly to the Roman period. Almost certainly, it's hard to prove, but certainly to the medieval period. Um, and uh, a lot of the street names are still there. You know, you've got um, you've got you've got streets with uh, well, uh, the most famous example that famous song uh, doing the Lambeth Walk. Lambeth Walk is a street in Lambeth, but it's actually a corruption of Lambeth Wall, and uh, it would have been a river wall, a flood wall, to keep the water out. So there was a lot of embankment that took that took place, um, and then there was also draining. So uh, you know, uh, although London is a city of natural streams. Um, early Londoners also cut their own drainage ditches, uh, drained the marshland to create um, agricultural land. So that whole area of Lambeth and Southwark, even as late as 150 or say 200 years ago, um, many, many parts of, of that area would have been open land, um, turned into market gardens to, to feed the growing population of London. Um, and that was facilitated by all of these drainage ditches. So if you're interested in the Lost Rivers, um, one of the things you, you encounter again and again are uh, Lost Rivers that aren't in fact rivers, but are, but are man-made uh, canals and, and cuts. Hello, it's Artemis. For some time, we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd, and we've been telling you about his fascinating colorization work. Well, recently, Jordan has launched his new project, It's a website called Unseen Histories, which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era, or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colourisation work in the past, there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at (laughs) unseenhistories.com. Speaking of the South Bank and, and the South of London, um, would you like to tell us what the third and final scene we're visiting in 62 AD is? Yes, and, and, and this is this is one where we don't have to do um, we don't have to do any kind of anachronistic moving around because 
I want to introduce us to uh, a character. Um, she's known to archaeologists as Harper Road Woman, um, but you know, for shorthand, let's call her Harper. And Harper Road Woman was was buried uh, in Southwark in uh, a road called Harper Road um, between 50 and 70 AD. So let's say she's she's still alive in 62 AD um, after the Budokan revolt, and uh, she was discovered as I said, on Harper Road, um, buried with a number of really interesting grave goods, uh, including some Samian ware, uh, which is kind of Roman dining ware, uh, and I have some Samian ware from the Thames in my hand in my hand now. Um, and she was also buried with a mirror and various um, pieces of jewellery. And I became kind of interested in Harper Road Woman, partly because of where she's buried. Um, she's buried on the edge of a geological phenomenon, um, known as the Rockingham Anomaly. And uh, let me just place us um, a bit more specifically. We're at the Elephant Castle, one of my favourite parts of London. Um, I've always been obsessed with the elephant. Um, it's always seemed to me somewhere with this kind of strange, slightly sinister energy about it. And I, I always used to put that down to the, um, the silver cuboid structure that's in the middle of the roundabout there. Um, the various people have, have described it as, as being like a, like a, a kind of Soviet missile silo or, or, or some kind of alien structure that has landed in the middle of Southern. Um, in fact, it's an electricity substation. And just northeast of the Elephant and Castle, um, I discovered this geological phenomenon known as the Rockingham Anomaly. And it's basically a huge depression in the ground um, where you wouldn't expect one. And it's been filled with peat. And um, this is one of the drift ho hollows or scour hollows that I mentioned earlier, um, there, there are quite a number in London and it may have been formed uh, when uh, London was under a layer of permafrost in the last ice age. Um, it, it might be a feature known as a pingo uh, where basically a, a block of ice has been formed underneath the ground, has expanded and then later has melted to create a crater. And I kind of trace the history of this, uh, this feature in my book. Um, because later it, it became a fen, it was known as Stew Fen. And when you trace the history all the way up to the Victorian period, you realise that this, this area, uh, which is now dominated by a housing estate called the Rockingham Estate, um, you realise that it was basically the last bit of land in the whole of Southwark to be developed. Uh, and that's because it was, it was this very low-lying, very kind of wet and boggy part of the city. Um, and I walked around there with, with, you know, people who grew up there. It was really fascinating. Um, you know, hearing from them that that even in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, it still has this this feeling of being kind of apart from the rest of the city. And just on the periphery of this this phenomenon was was Harper Road Woman. Um, and, and what's interesting about Harper, Harper uh, as we'll call her, is that um, she was buried in a way, and she had grave goods that are slightly confusing. Um, because they feature elements of, of Roman, uh, of, of what you'd expect from a Roman burial, but they also contain elements that would be um, more associated with pre-Roman or, or, or British or Celtic um, burials. And so it, it's speculated that she may have been, um, she may have in fact been, been a British, uh, a British native, as it were, um, but who, you know, was kind of under the influence of Roman fashion. Um, it's very difficult to say, um, but what is particularly interesting about, about Harper is that um, much more recently than her skeleton being 
discovered, uh, her skeleton was, was put under a DNA test and um, it was realised that although she'd been described as half a road woman for many, many years, uh, in fact, um, she had male chromosomes. Um, so it, she, it now appears that, that Harper may, uh, may in fact have had uh, some kind of um, uh, gender uh, disorder. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's kind of fascinating to, to think that, you know, almost 2000 years ago, some of the questions that as a society we're asking today about gender um, are, you know, go right back to the beginning of the origins of London. Mm, yeah. And could we talk a bit about some of the, the objects that she was buried with? Like, for example, what what is the significance of the mirror? Is that, does that have a, is that literally the things that she was buried with? Are they like the traditional idea of being that that's what she's going to take into the afterlife? Or are there other other explanations for those objects? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, th- there's a lovely idea, really, that the mirror, a mirror is, is something that is associated um, with female burials. So some of the reasons that um, she was identified as a female um, when her skeleton was first found were, were the grave goods. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the mirror is a big part of that. Um, she also wore a torque, so one of these amazing neck rings um, that's very much associated with, with Celtic tradition. And in fact, it has very you know, recognisable Celtic designs. It has a, a ring and dot and it has feathers and, and these kind of hatching uh, marks on it. Um, so that's a very Celtic thing, but it's also been identified with some Roman military traditions because I think Roman soldiers would also wear these kind of armlets um, that had similar similar designs, and it's been des- it's been described this, this talk as a pigeon artifact, so an artifact that has kind of elements of both of both cultures. So you know, I, lo- I like this idea that Harper Road woman Harper has this kind of um, she embodies in a sense that that moment of encounter between two different traditions, two different cultures. Um, she, what's also interesting is that is that some of her grave goods were were actually found broken um, and very deliberately broken. So, for example, she had these Samian ware uh, dishes or plates, and they seem to have been punched through with holes uh, in a very deliberate act of sabotage. And there's this lovely idea that um, I mean, nobody quite knows why. But it might be that there was some sort of ritual or magical purpose to this, um, that in some ways kind of transferring, you know, the body into death, uh, that, that the, the objects that she carried with her had to be, had to be sabotaged. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but it's kind of compelling. Mm, it definitely is compelling. I, I wanted to talk a bit about Southwark as well, because you mentioned at the start when you were describing London that the North Bank is the was the firmer ground and the kind of ideal ground for settlement. And I know from when I've studied London's history that um, historians seem to go to great pains to emphasise how unimportant South London was for most of London's history, which obviously as a native South Londoner, I immediately take offence at. But... Um, this is a fascinating discovery, the Harper Road woman, and um, she clearly was wealthy as well to be buried with quite, you know, like jewellery and the mirror and things. So it's obvious that there was significant settlement south of the river as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm a South London boy. There's quite a lot of South London in the book. And um, and yes, you're right. It's hard, it is hard not to be um, slightly, slightly annoyed when people focus merely on things north of the Thames. Certainly the, the, the bridge crossing is really important. So that area... Um, around London Bridge, around around kind of the, the borough, that's a very important area. In fact, at Borough, roughly where Borough Tube Station is now, 
was where all these Roman roads um, met. So Watling Street coming from Canterbury, um, Stane Street coming from, from Chichester, Sussex, um, th these would all have met um, here at Borough. Um, although they would have had to, and this is kind of interesting relating back to the Rockingham anomaly, this geological depression in the ground, this, this fen or marshy area. Um, in the book I describe how if you look at the alignment of all these Roman roads meeting in Southwark, it's very clear that they've been tweaked a number of times to go around the Rockingham anomaly. So this idea of the famous Roman roads being straight, uh, in fact, they were they were quite happy to to deviate when they when they had to. Um, but yeah, I mean, Southwark's a really important area. Um, when you look at the geology of South London, what's particularly noticeable is, as I said before, the huge swathe of, of alluvial marshland. Um, which would have been flooded at particularly high tides. And, and then you have the gravel terrace. Uh, so someone like Borough, I think, is just within the gravel terrace, um, which would be firmer ground. And then at London Bridge, you have this series of islands, almost like stepping stones, leading out into the river. And, and that is where, where most of the, the settlements in the Roman period would have been, and there would have been, you know, all the things you'd associate with a Roman city, including uh, temples, uh, uh, evidence of a temple has been discovered around Borough, um, and uh, and you would have had almost certainly some kind of military installations there, and roadside stalls and, and shops and housing and so on. Um, so I think what's important is is to think of London, of early London, as really being focused around the river, um, both sides of the river, so the city of London and Southwark as being really um, uh, contiguous, uh, and then certainly the rest of South London um, was was slightly less important for for the Romans, but there would have been settlements along the major roads. Um, so I think there are some Roman temples have been found uh, along Watling Street, particularly in in uh, Greenwich. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I hope that one of the things that London Clay does is to kind of reorientate our minds slightly slightly further south. And that can only be a good thing. Um, just before we head back into the present, I wanted to ask you a bit about any theories about why the Harper Road women had been found at this particular, this unusual, this Rockingham um, anomaly. Are there any, could you tell us a bit about what the best theory is for her being found there? Well, she's part of a series of, of, of skeletons that have been uh, uncovered in that area. And um, although she's right next to the Rockingham anomaly, she's not in the Rockingham anomaly. So um, there's, there's actually nothing particularly strange from an archaeological point of view um, about that. But uh, she's part of a series of skeletons identified with a Roman cemetery. The Romans, of course, had their cemeteries outside the city. Um, so uh, this was one of them, the Southwark Cemetery. And it was kind of scattered along the, along the Roman roads, uh, as I said. And there's another major cemetery in Spicklefields as well, again, outside of the city. Um, so that's really the... The reason, what's rather interesting though, is that when um, DNA analysis has been performed on on these skeletons, it has shown that uh, that these are people who come from a, a quite a wide area, um, people from from uh, northern Europe, but also a lot of people from the Mediterranean and even from North Africa, and I think some uh, some uh, Chinese uh, DNA has also been identified in, in some of those bodies. So it shows that um, London as a whole, and particularly Southwark. Was an area with, uh, you know, it was an incredibly diverse area ethnically um, as well as in, in other ways. And, and you know, I, I think it, it's impossible not to think of how that 
how that has played out throughout London's history. You know, we are, of course, a city, a city of migrants, um, you know, famously from, you know, from the Anglo-Saxon, from Norman Huguenots, uh, Russian Jews, Somalis, Bangladeshis, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. Um, and that really has always been the nature of London to draw people towards it from all over the world. Mm. Yeah, that's a lovely thought to end on. That that kind of continuity, even in a city where there's been so much change, there's that continuity in the in how multicultural it is and how rich that makes London as a place to live. Um, Tom, before we head back into the present, you're allowed to bring with you a memento from 62 AD. I know that because of your finds when you're mudlarking, this might not be that exciting a premise because you might think, well, I might find it on the banks of the Thames. Um, but if you could bring back something from 62 AD, maybe unworn by the passage of time, what would you like to bring? Brilliant. Um, it's such a brilliant provocation. And, and I was thinking of something that I would be unlikely to find on the river. Um, I've decided to bring back a shoe or a boot. Um, the reason I've, I wanted to bring back a shoe is because for me, there's something fundamentally very personal about a shoe, particularly if you're thinking about a leather shoe dating to 62 AD, you might in theory have the footprint of the person who wore it still impressed in the soft leather on, of, of the shoe. Um, but also because a shoe is is that is that kind of technology, if you like, that connects us with the ground. And so much of London Clay is about connecting us to the ground, to what lies beneath. Um, that I felt like that it would be it would be an exciting thing to have. I'm, I'm imagining the shoe. Perhaps it was worn by Harper Road woman. Perhaps the shoe was crossing the Rockingham anomaly on some sort of uh, rudimentary causeway. Perhaps perhaps she got the shoe lost in in the bog, um, or perhaps it was a a shoe that that um, you know that that, uh, that 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 tramped along the the cobbles of Watling Street. So I, I like this idea that the shoe um, connects us both with the person and also with the landscape. Mm, yeah, that's a perfect one, and a beautiful a beautiful idea as well. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. It's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Tom Chivers about London in the year 62 AD. If you head over to our website, you'll be able to see some photos of the things that Tom was describing he'd found while mudlarking. And you'll also be able to see some maps of the areas that we discussed. Do keep your eyes peeled for our Christmas special, which, like I said at the beginning, will be appearing on your feeds very soon. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening and happy Christmas.